Welcome. This is the weekly Sunday sermon from Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. You can find us at ranchobaptistchurch.org. This week's message by Pastor Jason Swanson, the Gospel of John, that you may believe, more than water into wine. The original date of this message was the 16th of October, 2022. Good morning, everyone. Enjoying this beautifully cold morning, last couple days. Okay, maybe I'm the only one that this is great weather, is it not? Okay, just making sure you guys are all alive out there. And let's just begin. Let's look at John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. In a title I've been... A sermon I've entitled, More Than Water into Wine. I want us to see the magnificence, the glory, the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Why? Because at times, perhaps you like me, you miss him. And you change him into something that's your own creation of who really Jesus is and and you're missing it as sometimes I miss him. I miss him even in a, an account like this that I thought I understood well before, preached on before, taught on before. And yet what we're going to see this morning oh so clearly is there, it, this is about more than water into wine. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, help us to see you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, not what we make you out to be. Help us to see you in all your wonder, all your magnificence, all your glory, and in what you came to this earth to do. You are our most precious treasure. You are our wonderful Savior. And I pray for any that do not know you this morning as their Savior, that you would open their blind eyes, that you would attune their hearts to yours that they would trust in you and you alone for salvation. And may you be honored now as your word is open. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher, be our guide, that we might enter into a deeper and sweeter communion with you, seeing you for who you truly are and responding to who you are through worshiping you, following you believing in you, Lord. And it's in Christ's name that we, that we pray. It's in the name that is above all other names that we gather together this morning. Amen. So if I were to ask you this question, and I guess I should have hid my sermon title before I asked this question. What, what, what's the largest miracle here? What is of utmost significance 
Is it the water into wine? Is, is that is what is on display for us here in these verses. And what I want to bring to us this morning is, is this argument that no, that is not what is in full display. That this isn't so much about a water being transformed into wine as it is sinners being transformed into saints. And that what we see from the very beginning is is Jesus put on display in such a way that it fits in with the purpose for why John wrote this gospel that, that we might see his acts and that believing in him we might have life and have it abundantly. But what often happens is we come to a passage like this and we believe that we understand it all. Come on, Pastor Jason, you're not going to be able to teach me anything new. I, I got this one. This is about this glorious first miracle of Jesus. And I, I would agree with you but what the Lord has pressed upon my heart in digging into this is what is primary? What is of first significance that is being communicated to us in these verses? I want to start off our time just making some observations. Notice as we, as we look at this and as we unpack it more and more, who hears about Jesus turning the water into wine? Who, who are the eyewitnesses of that account? Do you see anybody standing up with a, with a bullhorn or a big loud microphone and saying, hey, I want, I want everybody to stop right now because this wedding was just about to turn into complete chaos. Because the groom, he ran out of wine and his name and his family were about to be shamed. But this man, we don't even know much about him, but this man... Jesus Christ, save the day. Hey, let's applaud him. Where's that? I would like to present to us this morning that who is there watching this and who actually understands what happened is a very slim, small group of people. In the top of the list, you might miss this, but I believe the top of the list is Jesus' mom, Mary. Because what he wanted her to understand is that he's the Savior, not just her son. But we can't stop there. Because we saw last week the first disciples, the first followers, but that doesn't mean that they are the first to believe. And so included in this list who was there that saw Jesus turn this water into wine would, would then be who? Philip, Nathaniel, the unnamed disciple that could have been John himself, Andrew and Peter, that, that they were there. And, and then as we dig in, we'll see it. Well, the servants were there too. But after that, it's, it's not even implied that, that, the, that the groom knew it. You, you could actually extrapolate from this that the groom might have found out when the head waiter calls him. That the groom may not have even been communicated to that there was a wine shortage. All of this speaks to what the wonderful grace extended through Jesus in this first miracle. Another observation we must make and must understand is, is what is the overall attitude of people at a wedding? Is it one of drudgery? Is it one of sorrow? No. A wedding is the complete opposite. A wedding is a time of celebration and joy. And so as we see Jesus beginning his ministry on this earth, his public ministry, what does he start with? He starts with joy. Why? Because that is what he brings us. Because that is what is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the joy that this world is looking for, but this world is missing. Because it can be found in only one person in one place, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it can only be found by believing unto him for salvation. But again, I, I, I at times miss this. I, I major on the minors and I minor on the majors. 
And as I dug into this and as I saw this unfolding before my eyes and I saw, man, it's not so much about the water being made into wine as it is about these disciples believing, as it is about this testimony to his mom about what is coming up next. And as I saw that, I thought, man, how could I miss this all this time? And and Jesus, how could I not see that what? You are a person with a real mom that has real questions and answers and and at, and at times difficult comments to one another. And he had friends. And he went to places like you and I go to. Weddings, significant places that mean something to us, that meant something to Jesus. And as I, and as I considered all of that, my, my mind went back to, to our honeymoon with my, with my lovely wife here. We, we went to the Bahamas and we brought some snorkeling equipment. But instead of signing up for this party cruise where everybody goes out to an island and drinks and, and who knows what they do, we decided, no, let's, let's stay close to the hotel and there's nobody walking on the beach here. And man, we can just go snorkeling just a couple feet off of the shoreline. Hey, this is the Bahamas. So that's exactly what we did. We took out our, our masks and our snorkels and we, and we went out about 10 feet away from the shore. And that's where we did our snorkeling. And do you know what we saw? Oh, it was marvelous. We saw beer bottle after beer bottle. We saw cap after cap. All sorts of junk in the water. And every once in a while we'd see a fish and some of them were this big and some of them were this big. But if we, came, if we, if, if we met you when we came home from our honeymoon, we would have been, oh, we got to go snorkeling. Folks, that wasn't snorkeling. That was wading in dirt. You see, we found out what snorkeling was when we moved to Papua New Guinea. You see, Papua New Guinea's right next to Australia. And so the, the Great Barrier Reef, we, we've, we've snorkeled there and we've snorkeled in Papua New Guinea and I would take Papua New Guinea over the Great Barrier Reef any day of the week. Why? Because there's nobody there. And there's reef after reef after reef that, that's unexplored that's not dead, it's not brown, it's, it's, it's alive. And the further you go out, the deeper and the sweeter it gets. And this is how we are with Jesus. I, I, I said at the beginning, this is a little bit like Lucy with Aslan. I believe it's a little bit like, like me thinking that that must have been snorkeling in the Bahamas when it was not. That Jesus is so much greater than we make him out to be. That he is our personal and intimate God who is our friend. But we just tend not to think of him like that. But when we're faced with the reality of of what we're going to see this morning, you can't walk away without seeing Jesus as a person. Oh, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. And he stepped into our world and he walked in our shoes. And he went to the same places where you and I would go to. And those things that matter to us matter to him. And I don't know what that was, but that's my introduction. What I want us to see this morning is is Jesus isn't just merely turning water into wine, which is significant, which, which is a miracle, which none of us can do, which proves who he is, but what is represented to us in this account is so much more than that. Because all of that was presented to us so that souls might be one for all of eternity. That's what is really being driven towards in this. He's revealing his glory so that those who saw this miracle would trust in him alone for salvation. And that we could now look back at it and rejoice in all that God has done for us. Now this side, looking back and seeing what a great savior that we have. So what I'm gonna bring to us this morning our full four, three snapshots showing just how great Jesus is as our Savior that would then lead us to salvation in him or that would then grow us in our relationship with him if we are indeed already saved. And what is the first snapshot that we see? The first way that, that Jesus is put on display for us is this Jesus full of grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. That's what we see. 
That is how Jesus responds. It may not look like it when you take a first glance, but as you dig in and you understand what is being communicated, oh, there is grace upon grace upon grace. And we see this in verses 1 to 7. Notice who's at this wedding. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and who? The mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Jesus and his mom take prominence. They take precedence. So it would seem that they were the ones invited. But Jesus invites his disciples. Why? Because Jesus is a friend of sinners. Because Jesus enjoys fellowship with us and desires fellowship with us. Again, that's grace. Notice too that that he doesn't shy away from places that you would have a good time at. Jesus isn't someone who's boring to hang out with. Jesus is someone who rejoices in our rejoicing. And he wants to join us in the celebration just as he wanted to join them in the celebration of this particular marriage, this wedding. Grace upon grace upon grace. So what is happening here? By most accounts, this is what you would consider stage three of the wedding process for Jews. The first one is the consummation of the marriage. That's where the families, the parents get together and they agree on, okay, yes, let's let them get married. And then the dowry is paid. There is some sort of payment given. And what is the second stage? Well, that that first stage can last a long time. And they are actually considered married. And the only way to get out of it is to, to divorce. We, we know this from the life of Mary and Joseph. But the second phase is this cool thing where the, the, the groom would actually go searching after his bride-to-be. And usually he'd find her in her parents' home because that's where she was still staying, even though they were legally married. But really, we'd think of it as an engaged couple. And so he goes searching for her. He doesn't go alone. He brings everybody with him all of his party, all of his friends, all of his family. And they bring her back to his house. And that really starts the the third stage, which was was known and is known as the wedding feast. But don't think of it as as one particular meal. This This is pushed out through days. Could be anywhere from three to five days. And there were tons of food and there were tons of wine And this all was not the responsibility of the bride's parents. This was the responsibility of the groom. He forked the bill for everything. And when he agreed to marry her and his family agreed to marry her, it was understood that he was agreeing to all that that entailed. That means coming up with enough money to purchase all the food as well as all the drink. For you to not live up to that and to come short was going to be a huge deal. That's the backdrop. And Jesus was there. And notice his mom is there and it seems like his mom is in some sort of position of authority there. Why? Because she hears that they're out of wine. And notice where she goes when she's in need. And it's not even so much that she's in need, but this groom is in need. This wedding party's in need. This whole wedding of itself is in, is in desperate need. Something is seriously wrong. And where does Mary go? She goes to the one person who she knows she can trust and that she has learned to trust in. Notice she doesn't go to Joseph. Where is Joseph. When, when we get to John chapter 19, verse 26, we're going to see there too. Joseph is nowhere to be found when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he tasks John with the task of looking after his mom as now his own mom. Joseph's gone. Here it would seem that Joseph is gone already as well. Joseph's dead. What, what does that do for the relationship of Jesus and Mary? That brings them tighter. That brings them closer. You see, Jesus wasn't just the son of a carpenter. He was a carpenter. That means that he was making his own living off of carpentry. And no doubt he was the one who was supporting his mom. 
And so most likely what happened was through time, their relationship deepened and she became more and more dependent upon Jesus. And when she needed something, where would she go? She'd go to Jesus. Man, what a good lesson for us. We should go to Jesus for everything. In my mind, I'm thinking, no, Jesus doesn't have much money. Go to Peter. Peter had a shipping business. He had a couple houses. He was from a wealthy home. No, go to Peter and just ask him for an extra 20 bottles. That isn't where she goes because she knows who she should be going to. And so in this, her time of need, she goes to Jesus. That's grace that Jesus is there for her. Do you recognize Jesus is there for you today and everything that you're going through? And that he's intimately acquainted with all that you're going through. Did Jesus already know what she was going to say? You bet. Was he already aware of the one? You bet. He's God. He's fully God. And she comes to him. Do you think she came to him expecting a miracle? No. Why? Because Jesus hadn't done a miracle up to this point. I don't think she's coming to him thinking he's going to turn a whole bunch of water into wine. No doubt she's thinking he's going to handle it through some normal means. The purchase of more wine, bring it in or, or what have you. No, she, she needs to understand something even more. See, she's been trusting him up to this point as what? Her son, a very capable son. And what Jesus now wants to share with her is, I am so much more, mom. In fact, because of that, I'm not going to call you mom. Look at his response to her. This would seem rude, but it's not rude. Not in their culture. It's a rebuke, but it's not rude. It's not intimate either. It's not what you would think he would call the one who bore him. But he does. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? Notice his first word to her is woman. Do you know we're never going to see Jesus call her mom in the Gospel of John? From this point on, in particular, there, there is a line in the sand. And do you know what I believe that line is? Well, he lets us know. That line is, I no longer want you to think of me as your son. You, like everyone else, must come to the knowledge, Mom, and this is important to me because I want you to be with me for all of eternity. You must come to the place to where you see me more than your son. You see me as your Savior. You see me as the Messiah. You see me as the Redeemer. And listen, Mom, I'm not here anymore from this point on to do what you want me to do. I'm here to do what the Lord, our God, Yahweh, wants me to do. And his plan for me is greater than this. It's even greater than what I'm about to do in your presence. But I want you to watch. I want you to see this. I want you to see my power on display. Because it's nothing compared to what you are going to see. As I purchase redemption. As I bleed and I die. All of this is from our loving Savior. Who really does, in a certain extent, rebuke his mom. Reminding her now, hey, our relationship has changed. And up to this point, you've been calling me son, 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 son. But now I want you to get this. And this is also significant. I want you to understand why I've come. And then he adds grace upon grace as he says this. What does that have to do with us? This could have been translated, what to you and to me, literally, in the Greek. What to you and to me. What does that have to do with me as the ESV translates it? Or as the NIV translate, translates it? Why do you involve me? Hey, why are you bringing this up to me? Mom, you know that this is not your responsibility nor mine. This isn't our family. So why are you bringing this up? Basically what he's saying is, I don't have to do this. I don't have to step in and help. And just to make it even more clear that she would be looking ahead for what this hour is, notice what he says last. My hour has not yet come. Not my month, not my three years of ministry, not my day, 
But what? He, he confines it. He narrows it down. And he says, my hour, that hour where I will purchase redemption upon the cross, that hour. I want you to remember that, mom. I want you to recognize who I am. That I am the coming one. That my hour is coming. And so Jesus is pointing forward to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection. But he's also emphatically informing his mother that he's not on her timetable, but he's on his father's. All things are going to happen according to the Lord's preordained plan. So what has happened? The journey to the cross has begun. But that doesn't mean that grace still isn't extended. No, actually grace upon grace is extended. Because look at the way that his mom responds. It's as if she didn't hear him, but I believe she did hear him. And she's, she's starting to understand, man, I need to submit to him. And I need to trust him alone. And I need to stop being the mom that I am. Because a mom would what? A mom would tell him what to do. It doesn't really matter how old you are, right? Moms still like to tell us what to do. But you don't see that in her response. Instead, she tells the servants what to do. Hey, whatever he says, you do that. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Notice Jesus doesn't emphatically tell her, no, I'm not going to do this. But I believe she got the admonition. She got the rebuke. Okay, I get you, son. But you can still do something here. And notice what she does. In her time of need, she goes to Jesus. But she doesn't just leave that there. When she goes to Jesus, she leaves it with Jesus. I am so much not like that. I'll go and I'll pray to the Lord about something. And I'll turn around and I'll already have that thing back in my own hands. Perhaps you're like that too. We don't see that with Mary. She doesn't come to him with, okay, this is what you should do. No, she just lays it in his hands, trusting him alone, even though she has absolutely no idea how this is going to work out. And again, I don't believe she's thinking about miracles. So what she does get has got to blow her mind. Because she hasn't seen this before in her son, although he's God. So I'm certain that she's seen some amazing things in the way that he looks after her. In the way that he would obey she and Joseph. But nothing like this. I would say on top of that that there's this contentment in Mary's life. She's content with leaving it there. That's my problem. I'm not content leaving it there. I'd much rather have my hands on the situation. I'd much rather be the one in the driver's seat instead of just, okay, you've got this. And whatever you say, that is good with me. So she's content. Are you perfectly content to leave whatever kind of trouble and hardship you're facing in the hands of Jesus like Mary did here? Trusting him alone, even though you have absolutely no idea how or what Jesus could do to truly help you. But you're still gonna go to him. And you're going to entrust all of that over to him. And then from here, he launches off. And he gives us this beautiful picture to show the greatness of Jesus over anything that came in the Old Testament. Greater than Moses. Greater than the law. Greater than what was provided for before, even through the sacrificial system. And all this through these six stone water pots (laughs) that everybody had. But nobody filled them up with wine. And the last thing you would think you could get from them was wine. These were used by the Israelites to help purify, cleanse themselves. Generally, it had to do with washing your hands for eating. But if you went to the market, as no doubt they did, to get a whole bunch of food, and you happened to buy food from a Gentile, and he used his own utensils on that food, And perhaps he touched you. Then what do you do? Then you need to clean yourself. You need to cleanse yourself. You need to wash your hands and become clean. And that's the picture. That's what Jesus uses. That's what Jesus has them use. And then what is he going to do? He's going to show that he's so much greater than what those six 
containers are full of and what they represent in the Old Testament. He's bringing a new covenant. He's bringing something that is magnificent and more glorious than anything before because all the Old Testament law did was point to our sin and reveal our sin to us. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't clean us from the outside. He cleanses us from the inside and transforms everything. That's the picture. That's God's grace. And it's grace in abundance. Notice it's not one water pot. That's how I would have done it. It's six water pots. That if you add up all these gallons, we're talking... 120 to 150 gallons. Do you know how many wine bottles that would fill? A thousand. A thousand. Remember where we are in this process. This is towards the end. They've already done a lot of eating and a lot of drinking. And they've run out. And now there's another thousand bottles. That's grace upon grace. Why? Because they're not going to be able to get through them all. So who's going to receive them? Let's say they only use 50 and they have 950 left over. Who gets those? The bride and the groom. To start off their new life with each other. That's grace upon grace. Did he have to do that? No. And then notice how much they fill them. Not just a little bit, not halfway. But so that we would know how God's grace is so rich in abundance that they're filled to the brim. All the way to the brim. So from Jesus' response to his mom that, that they really didn't have to help this groom and his family, but he does anyways, what do we see? We see grace. In Jesus' response to his mom, yes, it was a, a slight rebuke, but really there's grace in that rebuke. Why? Because he's, he's pointing her to himself that she must come to an understanding that he is not just her son, he is her savior. And then too in the timetable of things. It wasn't yet his time. And yet, what does he do? By grace, he steps in. Really to expose his glory in just a, a little bit here. And then a little bit more as we continue on in John. And a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more until you get to the crescendo of his display of his glory for all to see. And that is upon the cross. And that is upon the resurrection. And that is upon the ascension to let us know that, that this is really nothing yet compared to what we will see. So Jesus full of grace is what we see first. Then we see Jesus full of power. Full of power. Why? Because this defies any kind of normal way of making wine. This doesn't make scientific any kind of verifiable scientific claim, right? This doesn't make scientific sense. This, this doesn't make sense of any sort. Water doesn't magically, mysteriously turn into wine unless somebody is God and he is doing it. And that's what we see. Look at what Jesus says. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the the water which had become wine and did not know where it, come, where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Implied, you've done it completely upside down, but it is so much better this way. So in all the times that you've looked at this, or even in your first reading, if this is the first time you've heard it, when do you think the water turns into wine? I've always thought that, maybe it's just a picture in my mind, and I've thought through this, that the water turns into wine as the water's going into the barrels. So when they're looking at the barrels and even walking over to fill them up and then take them to the head waiter, that they are indeed wine already. One problem with that is that the Greek gives us a little bit more insight. And I'm not going to stake my salvation upon this. But if this is the case, this is pretty amazing. This word draw, do you know what it means, what it's used for? It's used for drawing 
water out of a well. Over and over again, it's used for that. Over and over again, you use this word, people are thinking water. They're not thinking wine. You add on top of that this time marker now. Now, go and do this. It's not going to make sense to you because you're going to look at it and it's water. And you're going to think this is the most harebrained, lamest idea ever. I'm going to take a a cup of water and I'm going to bring it to the head waiter. He's going to laugh at me and this whole thing's going to explode. But okay, I will do what you say and that's what the servants do. Unless what happens is as they dip and they pull it up and it comes out, then you have the wine. And you look down and there's still water in that barrel. And they continue to do it that way. Is Jesus not capable of that? He, he does it with five loaves and two fish. Correct? Jesus is capable of far greater than this. And how amazing to see that that is what happens here. As he brings, or the servants bring this wine to the head waiter, notice his response. This doesn't make any sense. This is too good of wine for right now when it should be served. Everybody's supposed to have already had their kind of their palate, their stomachs full, so they don't care about getting the cheaper wine. They won't even notice. That's the way that it was designed. So you don't have to spend that much money. And towards the end, you can bring in the cheaper stuff. Perhaps more watered down. But no, that isn't what's going on here. Instead, it's the complete opposite as if to show us just how much greater Jesus is than all. Than all the old ways that they did things before. And so we see that Jesus is indeed full of power. It's funny as you, as you look at, really it's not funny, it's sad. So many liberal commentators, they, they go for all sorts of different ways to make sense of this. Why? Because they want it to match science. And so they say, oh no, those barrels, they, they really had some, some sort of grapes in there or something fermented just down at the bottom. And, and that's how it turns into wine. No, that isn't what the text says. It, it, they, they were water. You don't put grapes in these. That's not what their purpose was. It's important that they were made of stone. Why? Because then they would not make you unclean. So Jesus steps in and he does what really is a picture of the new covenant and how much greater the Lord Jesus Christ is to whatever came before. And Jesus turns really this whole practice upside down. Grace upon grace, bringing so much wine to this couple, to their wedding, and turning a catastrophe into something that's an added blessing that actually raises their name even higher and, and, and makes this groom looks like he's on top of it all when he was not. That's grace. That's the power of Jesus on display. So we see clearly that Jesus is full of power, all power. We see that Jesus is full of grace. And then finally, what we see in the final two verses is this, Jesus full of glory. And this really is the purpose for why he's done all this. I want to remind us again who was watching all of this. This would have been Mary and his disciples and the servants and and that's it. This isn't something that happens in everybody's vantage point in front of everyone. Only a select few knew about this. And yet it forever changes them. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This word beginning could have been translated in a number of ways. It means first. And this is indeed his first sign. He'll do seven more before he's crucified. Or six more and then another one after that. But this word could have also not just been translated first, but it could have been translated primary. This is the primary. This is the first one, but it's also primary. Why? Because it sets the stage for everything else. 
And it lets us know that what Jesus is doing and what he has done, it is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises of the coming one, of the Messiah. This new dispensation of grace. And might I say even more, the the new creation. Being born again, the new birth. All of that points to this. As to what Jesus is going to do from the inside out for all those who believe in him. He's going to change them forever. Not just wash them on the outside with water. But he's going to have their sins forgiven through his blood. Through his life giving atoning sacrifice by dying on the cross. And so what we see is this is the first of what these signs Uh, Signs, we could define them like this. I think this is helpful. It's a significant display of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. So it is indeed a significant display of power or a miracle, but it's not just a miracle. It's a miracle with a message that was intended to be understood through the eyes of faith. And that is what we see in this is Jesus' glory is put on display that they would know exactly who he is and as a result that they would what? Believe in him which is exactly what we see. That he was indeed God. Why? Because only God could do this. And that he was pointing back even to the sacrificial system and to the cleansing that just wasn't enough and pointing them forward to the hour that was coming where he would lay his life down. Recognizing that unless someone announced this miracle, most missed it. Say what, 90%, 95%? Just drank this wine and missed it completely. That's grace. Does that not remind you that while we were yet sinners, Christ, what, died for us? before we even knew? Could that not be the same case with this couple, with the groom, with the bride? The first time that the groom hears this is is when the head waiter calls him and he's like, oh, we ran out of wine. Maybe he kind of knew that that could be a possibility. And yet what happens? Jesus in his grace meets his need. Long before you and I knew the Lord Jesus Christ or about him, he died. That's just marvel upon marvel that he would do that. And that is what we share with others. That is what we believe in. That the Lord Jesus Christ, that he didn't die for nothing. He laid his own life down that we might believe in him and have eternal life. That's the whole reason why John has written this gospel that we would see him and that we would then respond to whatever he's done, getting a glimpse of his glory. And as I said earlier, this is really just the first glimpse of his glory. And as we continue through the the gospel of John, we'll see another glimpse of his glory and another glimpse and another glimpse and another glimpse until finally we get to the crescendo where he lays down his life And he suffers and he dies so that we might have life. And then he raises from the dead to prove that God was satisfied with his payment so that we don't have to fear death because Jesus paid it in full. But look at verse 12. Let me wrap up with this because this is a challenge to me. I think a challenge to us all. So he goes from talking about how the disciples believed in him. We don't know about Mary. Right? We don't know exactly what time, but recognize that, that most of these, they were already with Jesus. We know that Nathaniel trusted in Jesus, but is it the same thing to believe in him as to, oh, come and see, we found the Savior. No, it's not. The demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't believe in him unto salvation. They can see him and know that he's there, but it's not the same to believe in him as Savior, which is what this is talking about. But not all believe. After this, he went down to Capernaum, verse 12. 
he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days. It's telling that his mom went along with them and his disciples, but notice who also went along, his brothers. When we continue on in John, when we get to John chapter 7, do you know what we're going to find out about his brothers? They did not believe. It was difficult for them to believe. Why? Because this is Jesus. We grew up with this guy. But notice who also doesn't seem to believe. Where are these servants? These servants who watched all of this, saw Jesus change water into wine. Where is their seeing and believing? It's nowhere to be found. We don't see it. Why? Because they saw the sign, but they missed the Savior. They saw the sign, but they missed the Savior. Don't be like them. Don't come here Sunday after Sunday, or even if this is your first Sunday, and miss this opportunity for you right now today to believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he died upon the cross. Why? To pay for sins. Not for his own sins because he was perfect. Because God requires death for sins. That is the punishment for sin. So believe on him. And then what does the word say? The word says, when, if you believe in him, then you will what? Then you will have eternal life. For as many as believed in him, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. You'll be grafted into his family. You will spend all of eternity with those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Revelation. Let me, let me wrap up with this. this. This is so cool. Do you know in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, the first institution that God establishes before he does government, before he does anything, do you know what it is? It's marriage. Why? Because marriage matters. Marriage is significant to God. He created it. He loves it. He blesses it. When we follow his design for marriage, one man, one woman, And so we see that in the beginning. And who was the officiator? Who was the one that led the proceedings? It was God. God didn't ask Adam, hey, do you want a wife? No. He brought her to him. He was in charge. Just as we can't tell Jesus, well, you should have told everybody at the wedding party. No. He does things according to his plan and his will, not ours. But look at this. This is just glorious. This is what we're going to all partake in that are part of the family of God, those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you recognize, for those of us who have been to a wedding, have you ever been to a wedding that wasn't a good time? Man, I, I just enjoyed the last two. Why, one was my daughter, the other one I was officiating, and, and I just loved them both. This is gonna be the biggest wedding ever. Look at what it says, Revelation 19. And to see the multitude that will be at this wedding, This is when Jesus will welcome us and our faith will be turned to sight. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Why? Because there were so many of them, so many of us, saying hallelujah for for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. Why? For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. How do we prepare ourselves for this? Righteous acts of the saints. By walking in obedience to what the Lord has for us. By following him as the disciples followed him after they believed. That is what his desire is for us until he comes back and takes us. Which as I talked about the the stages of a wedding, think about that. The first was what? His payment. That was on the cross. His second is his coming for his bride. What's that? That's the rapture. What is the third then? This. The feast. The marriage of the lamb. Amen? Nothing cooler than this. Some points to ponder, some things to consider. Number one, consider how Jesus' mom knew where to go in her time of need to Jesus. 
What are you struggling with today that is too heavy for you to bear alone? What do you need to bring to Jesus this morning? Consider how Jesus' mom doesn't tell us what to do but leaves the solution up to him. Are you taking your burdens before the Lord and leaving them with him rather than picking them up again? Are you perfectly content to leave whatever kind of trouble and hardship you are facing in the hands of Jesus just like Mary did? They're in good hands. Leave them there. Let me pray as, as Brad and Claire and Kevin come up. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the, the feast that is your word that we, we are we are so needy. We need to see you more fully for who you are. We need to see your magnificence. We need to see your grace and how you extend it to us again and again and again. We need to see your power for how powerful you are to save, for how powerful you are to keep those that have trusted in you, how powerful you are to transform us into the image of your son. And we need to see your glory day in and day out that we would see your magnificence We'd see it on the pages of scripture as we spend time in your word. We'd see it even in each other's lives as we see a reflection of your glory as we, as we know happened with Moses, as you are transforming us and changing us, Lord. And one day we, we can't wait to see your glory in all of its splendor as you will call us to be with you and we will join with you as your bride. And you will be presented to us as our groom. And we will rejoice that we have a seat at your table. In Jesus' name, amen.